This is KVDM 88.1, and you are listening to The One Body Show. Today's special guest is Donetta Robin. Today's topic, the psychological consequences of abortion. And here's Donetta. Hello, listeners. Thanks so much to those of you who make this radio broadcast possible. Without you, I wouldn't be able to sit in front of this microphone today preparing to talk to you about the psychological consequences of abortion. The mainstream media is not telling you the truth about the consequences of abortion. But here at Divine Mercy Radio, we are. So thanks to all of our faithful listeners who take the time to send a check this way. You are truly a blessing. Let's begin this week with a prayer to St. Mary Magdalene, who is our model of humility and repentance. Her feast day, by the way, is July 22nd. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Mary Magdalene woman of many sins, who by conversion became the beloved of Jesus. Thank you for your witness that Jesus forgives through the miracle of love. You, who already possess eternal happiness in His glorious presence, please intercede for us so that someday we may share in the same everlasting joy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, I would like to warn you that some of the content of this show will not be for young listeners. So if you have little ones around, please consider turning this radio off. If you are still interested in the subject matter, which we hope you will be, please know that it will be rebroadcast at night, 11 p.m. Saturday, 1 a.m. Wednesday, and 10 p.m. Wednesday. It will also be available for download one week from today. Now, last week we talked about the physical consequences of abortion. So this week we're talking about the psychological and emotional consequences of abortion. So let's begin this week by sharing a story. We'll play kind of a little trivia, like guess who this is. Paul Harvey seems to be able to do this successfully, so let's give it a try. Eleven months after her marriage, Laura thought her American dream had come true. She had a handsome husband, a home of her own, and now she was pregnant. She carefully planned how to tell her husband, John, the good news. So she bought a tiny baby's bib, waited for a private moment together, and gently laid it upon his chest, offering him the gift of her child. But instead of rejoicing, John cursed at her. He insisted they weren't ready. They couldn't afford a baby. She would have to have an abortion. Laura was stunned. She had been raised in a traditional Catholic home. She had always believed that a child was the greatest gift a woman could give her husband. She didn't realize that her young husband, who had been abandoned by his mother and father as a child and raised by relatives, had his own unresolved fears about becoming a father. In many ways, he was immature and narcissistic. Many elements of their relationship 
suggested that he wanted Laura to fill the role of both a wife and the mother he never had. Perhaps the idea that a child, even his own child, might compete with him for her maternal affection was intolerable. In any case, no matter how much Laura pleaded with him, he would not relent. Abortion was the only option. When Laura insisted that they would have the baby anyway, John threatened to leave her. And for Laura, this was a grave threat. Divorce was unthinkable. She had been raised to believe that a couple must be willing to make any sacrifice to keep their marriage afloat. She turned to a friend, seeking support for her desire to keep her baby, but her friend encouraged the idea of abortion, telling Laura that she had had a couple of abortions and it wasn't that bad. Lacking support from any quarter and torn between her love for her child and her duty to her husband, Laura gave in. On June 15th, when she would have otherwise been busy planning to celebrate their first wedding anniversary, Laura had an abortion. Immediately afterwards, she felt as if her life was over. Emotionally, she felt as if she was falling apart. She no longer found pleasure in any of the activities she had previously enjoyed. She experienced her first major depression. She became sexually frigid. She began even stealing supplies from her employer. Laura and John's relationship was poisoned by the abortion. She resented him, and he felt rebuked by every sign of her sadness, anger, and depression. They became verbally and physically abusive with each other. He taunted her with a string of extramarital affairs. And during the next three years, they were separated twice. But there was a bond between them that neither wanted to break. After making mutual promises to reform their behavior, they moved into an apartment together. Finally, Laura hoped they could have the replacement baby she so desired. But then, as had happened several times before, John invited one of his buddies to come live with them. Laura saw the writing on the wall. Once again, she would be burdened with another long-term house guest with whom her husband would spend his nights partying. It was as if he were afraid to let their own relationship become too close. Having a party buddy in the house was his way of keeping Laura at a safe emotional distance. But Laura threw down the gauntlet. If John's friend Robbie moved in, she would move out. But as the deadline approached, Laura began complaining to her friends and neighbors that John had been raping and abusing her. But she refused all their offers of shelter Still hoping to conceive her replacement pregnancy, Laura continued to have consensual intercourse with John. She wouldn't leave him, not yet. The timing for this conflict could not have been worse. John's friend, Robbie, 
was due to arrive on Father's Day, just two days after their fourth wedding anniversary and five days after the third anniversary of her abortion. Laura spent her wedding anniversary at the doctor's office with all the symptoms of a classic post-abortion anniversary reaction. Her hands were shaking, and she was hyperventilating. She had cramping in her abdomen, feelings of anxiety and difficulty concentrating. And two days later, Robbie arrived. Laura moved many of her belongings out of the apartment, but continued to sleep with John and declined another girlfriend's offer of shelter. On the third night after Robbie moved in, John came to bed at three in the morning after being out drinking with his friend. Shortly after that, Laura found herself in the kitchen experiencing flashbacks to her abortion. All the loss and anger she felt about the abortion in her chaotic relationship with John came to a head. She picked up a knife, walked into the bedroom, and cut off her husband's private sexual part. Before he or Robbie could react, she fled the house with the body part in hand, pausing only long enough to grab up Robbie's portable Game Boy. Have you guessed it? Laura's real name is Lorena. She and her husband, John Wayne Babbitt, were at the center of one of the world's most spectacular trials of the late 20th century. You might recall that Lorena Babbitt was acquitted of the crime on the grounds that she suffered from temporary insanity arising from post-traumatic stress disorder. This case study is in the book Forbidden Grief by Dr. Teresa Burke, the founder of Rachel's Vineyard Ministries. Many newspapers carried the temporary insanity part, but left off that it was due to post-traumatic stress. Why? Because many people don't understand this mental breakdown, and quite likely those that do understand don't want to admit that post-traumatic stress disorder exists after an abortion. If they did admit this, they would know that the very womb that was created to bring life actually becomes a tomb of death. If any of you ever picked up a Rachel's Vineyard brochure, which you can usually find in the pamphlet rack at your local church, whether it is Catholic or not, and if your church doesn't have brochures, please let me know and I will make certain that they do get some. The Rachel's Vineyard brochure begins with a list of PTSD symptoms. We're going to review some of these today, which will indicate that abortion is psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually harmful, all which take a toll on the human body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Many women who have undergone an abortion find themselves crying, uncontrollable crying, for what may seem to others as apparently no real reason. Now, if any of you have dealt with the death of someone close to you, the grief generally comes out in tears. However, post-abortive women, once they leave the abortion clinic, aren't allowed to grieve, at least not publicly. It becomes, as Dr. Burke says, their secret sorrow. She calls this disenfranchised grief, 
meaning that the individual is denied the freedom to grieve. As I described last week, many of the women we've worked with on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat describe the uncontrollable crying that takes place in the recovery room of the abortion clinic, where women are laid side by side in cots. Those that don't want to cry are quite disturbed by the sounds of sobbing. And once they leave the clinic, they resume normal, everyday activities. So what happens to this grief? this sorrow from just losing a child within a mother's womb. Women may find themselves crying when they see a pregnant woman or a small child or some other trigger that reminds them of their abortion. There was one young woman who came on a retreat that had her abortion the day before Christmas Eve. As she was laying there and the abortionist was inserting instruments to kill her child, O Holy Night was playing over the intercom system. Thus, every time she heard that song, she would break down and cry and be unable to function the rest of the day. She avoided any church services at Christmas for fear they might play O Holy Night. Now, depending on the circumstances, triggers can play a significant role in a post-abortive woman. For example... There was one woman whose abortion procedure was by suction aspiration, and her trigger was anything that sounded similar. She had trouble in a dentist chair because of the suction sound. The suction of a vacuum cleaner was also traumatic. And other women, they might have done a good job of suppressing the memory of their abortion until the death of a loved one, for example, which brings the memory to surface, and after many years, will bring out a whole host of post-abortion trauma symptoms. Now, some women believe they should suffer, so they suppress their feelings, toughen up, because, after all, they are the one who made the decision to abort. Or, if coerced into an abortion by others, they feel they should have fought harder for their child's life. So they believe they should bear their grief alone. And the last person they would tell is someone in their church congregation. Most churches preach a pro-life message, which they should. Post-abortive women, however, are just terribly afraid of being judged by others. But I believe... That's just the devil's little trick to keep women silent. You see, before the abortion, the devil talks in voices like, You can't have this baby. What will your parents say? What will your friends say? Don't you want to save the relationship with your boyfriend? How can you raise a child by yourself? Don't you want an education? (sighs) You won't even make a good mother. But after the abortion, the devil turns into the accuser. You are bad and evil. Don't tell anyone, and especially don't tell your Christian friends. They will never accept what you've done. Please note, my friends, that Jesus Christ will talk to you in a different voice. He won't be aggressive, but soft, soothing, and comforting. Before the abortion, his voice might say, don't do this. I can place people in your life to help you. Trust in me. But then after the abortion, Jesus's voice still remains calm and inviting. Come to me. Your heart is burdened and heavy. 
Lay upon me. I will take this burden from you. I will touch you and heal your troubled heart. Trust in me. The trick here is to train oneself to recognize the shepherd's voice and not the evil ones. Now, a Rachel's Vineyard retreat designed to heal the wounds of abortion will help post-abortive women and men and anybody affected by an abortion to recognize and follow the voice of Jesus, our beloved shepherd. And while we're talking about the evil one here, I'd like to share with you the theme of a music video that truly touches my heart and speaks of how the evil one likes to take the truth and just twist it up. The music video is called, This Is My Body. If you go to YouTube and type in, This Is My Body, it will come up. Now make certain that this is the video song authored by Dana, D-A-N-A. Some people call her Donna, but it looks like Dana. This video shows how Jesus gave up his body in order for us to live. And the Holy Eucharist is Jesus. In the Eucharist, Jesus says, This is my body. I willingly give it up for you so that you might have eternal life. Well, The devil has taken these very same words and he twists them up to sell the culture on abortion. The devil says, this is my body and so I have a choice. I need to live and I will kill you, the unborn child, so that I can live as I want. Again, this music video puts these twisting up words into an awesome visual. So please, when you get a chance, look it up. It's on YouTube, and you just type in, This is my body. This might be a good time to take our first break, so stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio, 88.1 FM, broadcasting from Hayes. You're listening to One Body Stewarding God's Creation, and we'll be right back. You are listening to KVDM 88.1, and we'll be right back with special guest for today's One Body Show, Donetta Robin. This is KVDM 88.1, and you are listening to The One Body Show. And here's special guest, Donetta Robin. Welcome back to One Body, Stewarding God's Creation, where this week we're talking about the psychological and emotional consequences of abortion. Eating disorders are not uncommon among post-abortive women. Since women generally have no one to talk to about their abortion, they repress their feelings and it comes out in other ways. What is food? Food is made to nourish the body. Feed it. Give it life. It's associated with motherhood and duties such as love and nurturing. Oftentimes, then, food becomes the enemy. It's easier to deal with the food issue than to dig inside and deal with the guilt, grief, and anger and betrayal feelings that often accompany a post-abortive woman. Thus, eating disorders such as bulimia, anorexia, 
binge eating, excessive exercise, fasting, diet pills, laxatives, diuretics. They become a coping mechanism for the stuffed away emotions. Eating disorders can also be a symptom of perfection, wanting to look perfect on the outside so no one suspects what's going on on the inside. It's also a way to feel in control. Perhaps the woman felt out of control in the decision to abort, and obsessively controlling what they eat can be a way of seeking that control that was lost. Once we had a woman on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat who never wanted to join us for a meal. After some coaxing, we were able to get her to join us. But when we did get her to eat with us, she might eat one or two carrot or celery sticks. And if she ate that, we did well for that meal. This person was seeing a counselor for her eating disorder, and it is likely that coming on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat to deal with the emotional trauma stuffed inside from her abortion quite likely helped her counselor in dealing with the eating disorder. Depression is another psychological trauma that post-abortive women deal with. In my niece's journals, one could see depression written all over it. Shelley was someone who was motivated to receive an education. She always studied hard and got good grades. And Shelley had a good heart, helping anyone who needed her assistance. But suddenly, she began skipping classes. She'd forget her schedule at work and not show up. She'd want to study but found no desire to do so. And all this was documented through the lines of her journal entries as she poured her heart out to the Lord, trying to make some sense of her feelings and her life. She'd often write that she felt death all around her. Once, she had a meltdown at work and cried uncontrollably and had to leave. She was quite embarrassed at this public showing of the emotions that were wailing up inside of her. Now, we're going to talk about drug and alcohol abuse after an abortion. One way Shelley and many other post-abortive women deal with abortion is by numbing themselves with alcohol and or drugs. One-third of women begin drinking more heavily after an abortion. Drug and alcohol abuse is a way to avoid the tears and reality. When high, the post-abortive woman doesn't have to think or feel. It becomes a place of refuge. It virtually covers up all her pain. The only problem is that when she becomes sober, the pain intensifies. Alcohol, as we all know, is a depressant. So once sober, the post-abortive woman feels badly, not only about her abortion, but about being drunk and all the consequences and behaviors that go with it. As a result, it takes more and more alcohol or drugs to make the pain go away, and thus it becomes a perpetual cycle of self-destruction. Sleeping disturbances is also a symptom of post-abortion trauma. Many women will suffer from nightmares. These nightmares might include a child crying or dreams about having a baby in their arms or shopping for baby clothes or other baby items. They might even include visions of innocent, beautiful animals who were suddenly full of blood. Some might have reoccurring dreams about 
someone discovering their secret. Thus, in order to avoid the nightmares, the women find themselves staying awake at night and going to sleep at sunlight. 45% of women suffer from insomnia. Shelley documented this in her journal. She'd often say things like, It's 6 a.m., getting sleepy. I'll go to sleep now. Another reason for insomnia is that nighttime becomes an escape. Going to sleep at dawn makes sense because dawn represents a new day, a new beginning, something many post-abortive women don't believe they deserve. Quite common among post-abortive women is obsession with the father of the baby, a promiscuous lifestyle, and relationship troubles. Oftentimes, women are obsessed with the father of their aborted baby, no matter how badly the man treats her. We saw that in the case that uh, we described at the beginning of the show with, with Lorena Babbitt. This boyfriend is the last link to her unborn child. If she loses him, she has truly lost her child. There is truly an emotional bond here for her. And she thinks, well, we must have had something special because we created a child together. Some women will go even as far as stalking her baby's father. When they actually run into each other, all her emotions and frustrations can turn into a fit of rage, lashing out verbally and even physically. A promiscuous lifestyle can become a way to numb oneself, just like she might do with drugs or alcohol. And often, the two go hand in hand. A promiscuous lifestyle can be a way of keeping oneself in a perpetual cycle of self-abuse. She might find herself constantly choosing losers, so to speak, because the woman believes she doesn't deserve anyone who will treat her nicely. It is also a way to release trauma-related tension, just like drugs and alcohol. Promiscuity is also a way for the woman to control the situation. Again, something she may have lacked when being taken to the abortion clinic. Oftentimes, a promiscuous lifestyle will be in the form of traumatic reenactment. Traumatic reenactment can happen when there is an unresolved trauma and the brain is subconsciously trying to resolve it. So in entering into the same trauma over and over and over again is a way of trying to solve the unresolved trauma. It's like the person says to themselves, this time I'm going to get it right. This time it will work. But instead of it working out, they find themselves repeating the same behavior over and over and over again. That's why repeated abortions is not uncommon. Now, last week I talked a little bit about how abortion is like rape in the sense that the victim kind of covers up the crime. But there's really more to it than that. Oftentimes, and I think too often in our society today, a woman is introduced to God's gift of sexuality in a negative way. Frequently, this involves rape or sexual abuse, and not uncommon is sexual abuse of a woman when she was a young girl. Thus, if a woman was never taught to respect her body as a young girl, she won't be respectful of her body as an adult. 
it's really not her fault. She's just never been taught any other way. That's why the teaching of Pope John Paul's theology of the body in our culture is so important, and I believed it should be taught in some format at a very early age. Abortion, then, becomes a traumatic reenaction of rape. Just think about it. Again, the woman is flat on her back, she lacks control of the situation, and most often the abortionist is male. Abortionists, by the way, have been noted for being rude and downright mean. In my niece's case, the abortionist was quite despicable, as he yelled and even cursed as he was performing the abortion. Women on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat have verified the rude treatment they receive from the abortionist or other clinic workers. One woman said she returned to the abortion clinic as an employee just so women might have someone nice when they came in for their abortion. When a mother has had a previous abortion and she is later beginning a family, these unresolved emotions can result in dysfunctional parenting styles. In some cases, a woman can rob herself of the joys of parenting And parenting seems like a chore, a never-ending drudgery. A woman can also become excessively overprotective, afraid to let her child out of her sight and not allowing her child to experience the world, a world which sometimes results in a few bumps and bruises. This, Dr. Burke says, can be an irrational fear that God is going to punish her by taking her child. Another aspect of distorted parenting is the fear to discipline and spoiling the child with an overabundance of worldly goods. Lastly, a woman might feel that she can't be a good mother because she killed one child and thus has trouble bonding with her children born after the abortion. And even some have obsessive thoughts about killing their children or want all their children to be in the same place. Susan Smith, who drowned her two children by buckling them in a car and dumping the car in a lake, was post-abortive. With all this trauma, many women become locked in their own internal prison. They don't feel they deserve happiness, much less a good relationship. In one of my niece's journal entries, she documented that she didn't deserve to be loved and that she was afraid of true love and that she was totally alone. Without healing the emotional trauma of abortion, women lock themselves in their own internal prison. And I'd like to share this entry from Shelley's journal, which shows how this happens. Dear Lord, I'm still praying in my heart to someday truly find you. I feel you near me somehow as I sit here at three in the morning, candles aglow, The calm and mysterious sound of the ocean fills the room. I write to you. I just feel like I'm growing so extremely numb and bitter. Yet I'm desperately searching for even the smallest reason to still believe. Stay calm. Relax. Breathe. I need to exercise these simple tasks more often. Too much worry or maybe too much alone time. Life doesn't have to be so much of a struggle every day. 
I wish I could understand that honestly. What am I struggling with anyway? Myself? People who disappoint me that shouldn't even matter to me? Focus on you. Take care of yourself because no one else will. Depend on no one so you can completely avoid heartache. Trust only you. I'm not finding what I am searching for, but I hardly know what that even is. Some laughter? A smile without having to pay the price? The trust without having to take the risk? No love. Feel love. Want love. Need love. Believe in love. Do you deserve to be loved? Yes. But something keeps holding me back. I am terrified of revealing my true self to somebody. I fear rejection and not enough love and understanding. Discover yourself. Respect yourself. Love yourself. I'm left longing for something or someone to believe in, and as much as I want to be independent and completely on my own, my heart becomes emptier every day. My pride leaves me, my tears flow, my eyes close, my hands are tied, my skin cold. Where is my rainbow after the storm? As I said last week, I have written a book based on my niece's journals, which you can obtain at Messenger Catholic Books, Gifts, Music, and Art in the Centennial Mall in Hayes, or by calling the KVDM Studios at 785-621-4110. This week, we're talking about the psychological and emotional consequences of abortion. With all this post-abortion trauma walking around in our culture, and only a very small percentage of them that are brave enough to encounter a post-abortion healing ministry such as Rachel's Vineyard, how do these women cope from day to day? Well, Dr. Burke describes four defense mechanisms that individuals use to handle their abortion. Some people might use just one of them, or some might practice all four. The first one is denial. This is when a person is actually unaware of some reality that they do not want to face. They suppress their memory so much so that they convince themselves that they did not have an abortion. However, as said before, something in their lives will likely trigger this memory. A death of a loved one can result in the unresolved grief of their own loss. Sometimes they might think, Now my loved one sees me in God's eyes and knows what I have done. A second defense mechanism that is sometimes used is called projection. We attribute to others what we are actually feeling ourselves. Possibly this consists of individuals who have had abortions that go out and counter-protest. They might shout, I'm glad I had an abortion. It saved my life. Even recently, one person put a picture of the jar that collected the remains of her abortion on the Internet, saying she wanted to demystify the sensationalist images propagated by the religious and political right. The anger they feel toward themselves is justified by projecting it onto another person. And this can be acted out in many, many different ways. A third defense mechanism is called intellectualization. A person spends time 
thinking about the conflict, but without experiencing the unpleasant emotions attached to the conflict. They might think, it was the best thing for me. Yes, I miss my baby, but this is just what had to be done. Once I had a person call our Rachel's Vineyard hotline from Canada. The entire time we talked, she kept saying, but I'm a professional. I was trying to get her to recognize her need for healing and call a Rachel's Vineyard retreat close to her. But again, she replied like she did throughout the conversation. I'm a professional. She was intellectualizing because she was an educated, professional person. She should not be having these post-abortive symptoms, she thought. Finally, I tried to reach her on her level by offering to send her, free of charge, Dr. Teresa Burke's book, Forbidden Grief. And she agreed to this. I later received a note from her that said, Hey, thanks for the book. I didn't open it, but gave it to someone who might need it. After all, she was a professional. Well, it was this professional woman who did call me. And I think of her now and then and pray that in some way she did find her way to healing. A fourth defense mechanism might be to withdraw. Whenever someone speaks about abortion or the individual thinks about their abortion, anything that can come in conflict with their feelings or emotions, they simply withdraw, become real quiet, or somehow find a way to leave the room. There are many more aspects of the psychological damage of abortion. There's lowered self-esteem, there's flashbacks, there's repeat abortions, panic attacks, and a whole lot more stories that could be shared. If you are interested in reading more about the psychological consequences of abortion, you might want to purchase the book Forbidden Grief, authored by Dr. Teresa Burke, the founder of Rachel's Vineyard Retreats. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't Be duped by this crazy message that abortion is good health care. It simply is not. Between last week's show and, and this one, you can clearly see that abortion is physically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually harmful to the body. How is our federal government selling abortion as good health care? It isn't. There isn't one aspect of healthiness for women through abortion, and it literally kills an unborn child. Also, if you or someone you know has suffered from an abortion decision, please, please give yourself or them the gift of a Rachel's Vineyard retreat. Experience the healing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a powerful retreat, and it will help you to cope with all those pent-up feelings. I'd also like to mention that abortion affects more than the woman who went to the clinic. It affects parents. It affects siblings. It affects grandparents. It affects friends who may have taken the woman to the clinic. It affects former abortion workers, and counselors at Planned Parenthood in other such clinics who counsel women to have an abortion. If any of you, any of you are suffering from guilt, inability to forgive yourself, or any of the symptoms we talked about today, please, 
please know that you, too, are a victim of the culture's sell on abortion. Rachel's Vineyard can help you. So call one 877 grieve That's one 877 grieve Please tune in again next week as I address the issue of men and abortion. And one last pitch. If you can help out Divine Mercy Radio with a donation to keep us on the air and broadcasting these one-body shows, please find it in your heart to do so. We sure could use it, and God will bless you for helping to spread the truth in these often troubled times. Have a blessed week.